Welcome to In Conversation, brought to you by Fine Music Sydney. In each episode, our host, Simon Moore, speaks to one of the important figures who make up Australia's artistic landscape. Over the course of the programme, you'll hear all about our guests' life, work and interests, along with a number of musical pieces of their choice. I'm Simon Moore. Welcome to In Conversation on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. My guest today is a multi-award winning theatre director and writer. Dean Bryant has a string of directorial credits too numerous to name. With the Melbourne Theatre Company, where he was associate director from 2016 through 2019, he directed The Lady in the Van and An Ideal Husband. For Opera Australia, Anything Goes. And for The Hayes, he directed Assassins, as well as their debut production, Sweet Charity, for which he won the Helpman Award for Best Director of a Musical. And to top it all off, he's the worldwide associate director of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. But his creativity doesn't stop with the direction, as he's the co-writer of the musical version of Miles Franklin's My Brilliant Career, as well as many others. He's in Sydney now because he's directing Stephen Sondheim's Merrily We Roll Along, which will be back at the Hayes Theatre as soon as this lockdown is over. Dean Bryant, thanks for taking the time to be in conversation with me today. Thank you for having me. Well, we'll start in the present with Merrily We Roll Along. It's described as the heartbreaker of Sondheim's musicals. Why so? Uh, I think I actually came up with that phrase Uh, um, because I was trying to figure out what it is that draws people back to Merrily We Roll Along with it being famously flawed. You know, it was... um, It was actually the musical that broke up the Hell Prince-Stephen Sondheim partnership that had been, you know, the artistic genius power duo of the 70s on Broadway. The show prior to Merrily had been Sweeney Todd, which of course was massive success. And then Merrily came along and they never worked together again for decades, actually. They stayed great friends, of course, Mm. but... It did something to their partnership because it, you know, was terribly difficult to open and then it closed very early. 16 performances, I think, on Broadway. That quickly. It was that quickly. Devastating. Wow. But but also, it, it's evolved over time. Like, it was kind of redone. To what extent was it changed from that original? Some of the actors have done extensive research into the original version and apparently it's very, very different. Uh, I've always known this version that I'm directing because right. it's the one where it's sort of moved from a show that didn't work at all to one that actually worked quite well and is very moving, which is why I described it as heartbreaking. James Lapine, who ended up um, writing with Sondheim on the next series of musicals, um, starting with Sunday in the Park with George, I think came in and did some uh, shifting around of the book. I think there might have been some songs rewritten and reapportioned to other characters. And then bit by bit, it just got refined and also known you know over over time people just listened to it more saw other productions and bit by bit came to realize that what was underneath this show was probably the biggest beating heart of any Mm. of the shows because it actually isn't cerebral like some of the other shows are it's emotion driven Mm. i know that sometimes original productions can be quote-unquote failures for reasons which are of no fault of their own, it's just circumstances, something goes wrong, there's a falling out, as you say, between people. Is it more that or was it more the fact that it did need a bit more workshopping slash drafts? I think it's just the thing of every original musical with mm. an original score, all of the things all happening at once is a miracle if it's mm. pulled off. Because 
musicals by their nature are very, very difficult to get right. You know, you are not just dealing with dialogue, you're dealing with songs. So immediately you come up with uh, more things that can go wrong and need to be gotten right. So you is the song the right song? Is it in the right order? Has it got the right lead in from the dialogue? Is mm. the dialogue doing too much or too little? And that's just with the actual creation of the script. Then you have orchestrations, you have staging, you have the skill level of the people doing it. So I think there's just a higher proportion of things that can go wrong. Mm. The other thing about Merrily when it first appeared was that it was dreamed up as a show for very young performers. It was written for uh, 16 to 21 year olds to do. But of course, it ages backwards in time. They start as 40-year-olds and age back to their actual age, which, of course, if they'd been incredibly experienced actors, would have been like so moving when they finally shed their last costume and were their own age. But of course, age 16 to 21, you don't have a lot of experience with the world, with mm. acting, with your skill set. So imagine starting the show aged 40 years old, pretending to be 40 years old. It's just, you don't even know what it means to be a 40-year-old yeah. when you're 16. So have you handled it a bit differently the way you're doing it? What's traditionally happened since then is that you mid-cast it, as in you get performers say, that seems more sensible. <laughs> 30 years old. They can go up, they can go down. Exactly. It's not so hard to throw your minds forward to 40. A little, little bit of makeup to cover some of the... Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> There's actually a film being uh, done, isn't there, over the course of 20 years oh of this? Oh, my God, there is. The Richard Linklater. Yeah, Richard Linklater, with, um, like he did for Boyhood. Mm -hmm. Boyhood. Same sort of experience. Yeah, yeah, they've started filming. I guess they've filmed the rooftop scene, which is what ends the musical right. with... Um, oh, spoilers. <laughs> well, it's on a roof. <laughs> <laughs> and then in 20 years' time, they'll film the opening scene and put uh, the movie back together. Yeah, goodness me. Incredible. Well, it's now 40 years old. Um, debuted in 1981, which makes me feel old as I remember 1981 quite well. Is there anything that you need to update to make it work? I mean, is yours sort of set in 1981 or 2021 in those eras or... I mean, I know that they age throughout or back, age backwards. Mm, Is there any yeah. reference to timing? Well, I mean, we know what years they are because they sing them every time they do a scene change. Yeah. Uh, but it's very... What we've done is costume it in what I always call period timeless, where you go, those are clothes that you wore in that age, but they're also clothes you could see on people now. So you mm. feel that... It doesn't feel too like, oh, my God, it was the 80s. What a laugh. Yeah, you're, um, not, you're not doing kind of comedy clothes. Exactly. We're not so, in a yeah. satire world. Yeah. We're in just the realism of what people wear for day wear. So it's it's a very um, traditional production in its approach to time mm. and the reversal of. Uh, they're very non-costumey, actually. It's it's like just a catalogue of, of what Vanity Fair would have looked like or something. Yeah. So that feels really high glam. <laughs> it's not Vanity Fair. <laughs> it's People Magazine. People Magazine. There you go. <laughs> but when you're directing a show like this, which has had many productions um, and existed in, in a myriad of forms, to what extent are you referring to those other versions or, or do you try and block those away as much as you can? No, no. I um, study every version, which in the case of Merrily and all Sondheim work that um, I've been lucky enough to work on isn't hard because I passionately devoured it when I was a late teen. So I always have known what original Merrily looked like. Um, I've known what uh, the ones that solved it better. I got mm. to see it at the... Um, uh, many a chocolate factory in London, wow. maybe, got a decade ago now, and it was incandescent. So I always knew that there was an approach to this particular show that works very well. Mm. So really, I just approached it um, the way I do most things that I work on, which is, what's this about? What can we bring to it today? Mm. Well, I think we have to have some music now. Now, we're going to save a little bit of Merrily We Roll Along for a bit later in the program, but we have to start with Sondheim. Mm. And you've got, um, well... 
one of the key tracks from Company. Can you tell us about what we're about to hear? Sure. Um, this is Another 100 People, which is a key song from Company. It's the one that Sondheim really became Sondheim in when he wrote it in, I believe, 70 or 71 when it premiered. He had obviously had huge success as a lyricist for West Side Story and Gypsy, and even as a composer for Forum. Funny thing happened on the way too. But people still were treating him as if he was a wannabe composer. And with Company, his voice so clearly came to the fore that he was a force from that point on, um, established in everyone's mind, won many awards for it. But for me, when I heard this show as a teenager, it did a couple of things for me. It made me want to direct. I'd never thought about it before then. And I did direct Company as my Mm. first show ever at Melbourne University. (laughs) So that was the first time I got to direct because I couldn't figure out how else I would see this musical. Um, And it also instilled a love of New York City, Manhattan, in me, which I craved um, to go there one day because this song, Another Hundred People, is all about how people meet in Manhattan or don't meet. So it set up a love. And the actual singer of it, Pamela Myers, who sings it in the version we're about to hear, I just thought had a phenomenal voice. And when I finally got to New York on my very first trip, I ended up meeting her. So it was all very cool. People just got off of the train and came up through the ground pile. Another hundred people just got off of the bus and are looking around at another hundred people who got off of the plane and are looking at us who got off of the train and the plane and the bus maybe yesterday. It's a city of strangers. Some come to work, some to play. A city of strangers. Some come to stare, some to stay. And every day. trees with the battered box and they walk together past the poster walls with a crude remorse and they made it party through the friends of friends who they never know will you pick me up or do i meet you there shall we let it go did you get my message because i looked in vain can we see each other tuesday if it doesn't rain who will call you in the And another hundred people just got off of the train. It's a city of strangers. Some come to work, some to play. A city of strangers. Some come to stare, some to stay. And every day, some go away. Or they find each other in the crowded streets and the guarded parks. By the rusty fountains and the dusty trees. from the original Broadway cast of Company with Another Hundred People. And that's the first choice of my guest in conversation today, the director, Dean Bryant. So, Dean, what makes Sondheim's musical special for you? 
I think what makes them so special is the ideas behind them. He's obviously a brilliant um, craftsperson, composer, lyricist. His lyrics are um, unparalleled. His ability to rhyme, his ability to choose a topic to sing about in the first place that hasn't been sung about before in music theatre is also unparalleled. Um, he can write simple, he can write complex. I love his composition skills. But above all, I love the ideas that are contained in his musicals. And that's what turns them into classics like, mm. you know, like Shakespeare, like Wilde, like the general theatre canon, because they're endlessly open to a new interpretation, as in coming to them afresh every yeah. time. They're just dense um, and yet light in some ways as well. Yeah. I mean, you directed Assassins uh, for the Hayes. I mentioned the introduction, for instance. That's different to company. It's different to Merrily We Roll Along. Mm. What was the approach taken there? Because that's quite dark, but also funny. <laughs> I loved Assassins. I've yeah. always loved Assassins. That was one of the shows I knew I would direct one day, uh, whereas Merrily was not. Mm. Um, with Assassins, it's... It's it's a pastiche musical, which pastiche is when you take, um, you know, a form of music and homage it in a new song. And I love the sort of popular culture references that Sondheim wrote in because it's it's based on a century of, of American popular music, the styles he wrote in. It's historical, so it's fascinating in that sense. And it's written as a review, essentially. So all of the scenes are really like comic sketches, Some, sometimes not comic, sometimes just uh, a scene. And I thought, what an incredible structure to just build bit by mm. bit towards mm. a kind of idea being enunciated on stage. So, of course, the trick to that is how to make it feel like a full evening of theatre and not a series of disconnected sketches. Mm. But the reaction that we'd have here in this country to something like Assassins is, well, certainly for your production, it was different to how the original was received in America, wasn't it? Because it, it was quite controversial, seen as quite controversial at the time, wasn't it? Yeah, timing is everything, of course. And when it first premiered in, I think, early 90s, uh, it was just when the Gulf War had started. So there was a surge of patriotism through America. Uh, and of course, you know, it's about assassins, people who tried to kill the president of the US, therefore questions the very existence and ideas that the US is founded upon, which mm. weren't really up for discussion at that point in history. They did a cast album, which is always what um, gives a good show, good musical, future life. And so bit by bit, people were like, it actually sounds pretty great. They started doing productions. There was a, um, a Sam Mendes production at the Donmar Warehouse when he ran that, which began to resuscitate its reputation. And then uh, our famous Joe Mantello one on Broadway that also got moved because it was meant to premiere just after September 11. And they're like, yeah, still not the right time. <laughs> yeah, But I think it was about 18 months later and was a big success. Um, for us in Australia, we're very happy to sit slightly outside America mm. and are very aware of uh, the pros and cons of that particular government. So it's always been uh, a pretty easy show to play in Australia. Mm. Now, whilst uh, musicals do make up a fair chunk of your output, you also direct straight plays. Uh, do you have to compartmentalise your brain into how you direct them or are there actually more similarities than there are differences? There are more similarities than differences I've found, uh, which is that you approach them the same way. You're still essentially going, what does the writer want to say with this piece, do I think? And how do I best serve them through casting, direction and design? Uh, plays can be harder than musicals because as a director, 
you're there in front of the room eight hours a day. It's always on you to keep it moving. Uh, the rhythm in a play, you have to find yourself. The words, of course, I read a play and I can tell what I think the writer's rhythm is intended to be. But it's so open for interpretation with the cast and you spend a lot of the period finding that rhythm as well as character, as well as all that stuff. Whereas in a musical, because of the very nature of the fact that the songs are written to music, the rhythm of that is clear. And therefore, the rhythm to get between songs to songs is much clearer. And of course, the workload on a musical, though harder because it requires more moving pieces to come together, you hand over to the music director in rehearsal sometimes or to the choreographer. So the workload is shared a little. Mm. Now, I'd like to delve back in time now and uh, find out how we got here. You mentioned uh, directing uh, company as your first <laughs> proper directorial mm. role. But I, I imagine you must have been corralling the neighbourhood kids and creating shows in your backyard as a child. Please tell me that was so. Yeah. Uh, well, I didn't have a backyard. I well, grew up on a dairy farm. Well, <laughs> I had a, quite, big a big backyard. backyard. <laughs> <laughs> so I was corralling. I'm the eldest of four, my brothers and sisters. We are um, very non-artistic family, farmers. And something though about my parents who I guess encouraged a sense of maybe exhibitionism mm -hmm. or something like that, because all four of us have grown up to do some facet of performing arts in our lives, which uh, is quite interesting from that sort of background. But um, I think I just always loved, especially musicals. I didn't really know what they were. I always loved music, of course, but I remember we got, um, obviously well before the internet, the way you learned about the world on the country, in the country, was through the World Book Encyclopedias, uh. which got delivered to your house. And each, each year they'd bring out an update to fill you in on all the stuff that happened in the world the last year, which it sounds so archaic now. It's like yeah, going back I remember to that though, yeah. riding horses or something, which I also <laughs> did, of course. Yes. And every time we'd get that update, I'd flick to the T section for theatre and then read the, who won the Tony Awards, even though I'd never heard of any of these shows before. So there was something... Let alone any of the performers, I imagine, because how could you? They're Absolutely in New York. not. <laughs> and I didn't have the recording, so I didn't even know what these things were, but I was just fascinated by the pictures that they'd put in there. And I'd be like, oh, wow, that looks cool. So I did musicals at my high school. Um, we had a very good drama teacher who had been to drama school and so she would direct us in musicals and I just developed a love for it without intending to do it as a career. I didn't really think it was a career option. And then um, I got into law school, so I did that for three years, really fell in love with musicals then, directed that company. And then I auditioned for WAPA, the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts. And they actually took me in as a performer and trained me as a director at the same time. So that's kind of where I moved into, I guess, the professional part of my career or the training to be a professional part. But then that first gig, I mean, company is not the first professional gig. It's uh, it's amateur, well, not non-paid, as it were. So, so when's the first... Uh quote unquote proper gig and, and how do you how do you kind of yeah, sure. land that well it's weird because at um, drama school I met my um, boyfriend now of almost 25 years Matthew Frank who was a composer and I loved his music I certainly had not intended to be a writer which I've turned out to be as well but I just thought his music was so theatrical and incredible uh, but the person he had been working with as a lyricist I didn't think was going to yield the success in his life that I thought he deserved um, so they parted ways eventually and then through a series of 
beggings almost, he decided to give me a chance as a lyricist. And we wrote a musical called Prodigal, which was the first thing I'd ever written, and put it on ourselves. We, we workshopped it at drama school just before I graduated and put it on straight after I graduated. It won the Green Room Award for Best Score that year. And then that musical made its way to an off-Broadway company in New York who ended up producing it. So mm. that was sort of the first professional thing I did in theatre, have my work done off-Broadway. Did you get over there for it? Yeah, absolutely. It was incredible. Tell me about traumatic. that experience. <laughs> traumatic. <laughs> it was awful. Not the, not the response I was expecting. Why traumatic? Were they mean to you? <laughs> no, they couldn't have been lovelier. It was a great company and an incredible cast. Um, Christian Ball, who was in the cast, went on to win two Tony Awards yeah. later in life. Kerry Butler went on to Hairspray as her next show. But they allowed us to choose the director, which was very generous, and we chose very poorly. And the director we chose turned out to be better at interviews than rehearsals. And so she had to be let go just before technical rehearsals. Oh, that's late. Very late. Very scary. She'd asked for a series of rewrites that I felt weren't working, but I didn't know. And so then the artistic director of the company and myself kind of had to relay race redirecting the show in 24 hours to give it a chance of surviving and, and did very well. But it was beyond stressful. Goodness me. Well, what about uh, Priscilla? Because that's something that's uh, mentioned in the introduction, and that's a, a sort of a worldwide product. Mm. Uh, how did that opportunity arrive? I mean, it's more than 10 years ago now that you were involved with that, isn't it? Yeah, I started work on that in 2006. Oh, goodness. Okay. Um, it came out of my connection to Melbourne Theatre Company originally. Uh, Simon Phillips, who was artistic director of Melbourne Theatre Company at the time, saw Prodigal when we first did it, loved it. Um, saw another musical that we wrote for a youth festival and was like, you guys are good. Why don't you turn this youth show into a full piece for us, which we did. And he's like, hmm, I think it's too youthful now. I'm looking at it. But because the workshop that we did for the company was so well staged, he was like, I'm going to take you on as my assistant director on a musical I'm doing next year, which was the Australian premiere of a musical called Town." And that was my first paid job as a director. I was assistant director to him. And that started off a really long and ongoing relationship. So I ended up uh, assisting him on seven different pieces. And Priscilla was the third, I think, which then had um, a 12-year life. So I helped Simon make the show. We, you know, it was a hodgepodge of an experience because... There was writing coming in from all sides. Um, we had to figure out how to put a bus on stage that was self-moving, technology that had never existed in Australia. We had like six months to develop it, which you would never do. Certainly, they don't do that in New York with a six-month no. lead time to go from no designs to bus and costumes on stage. But it was like so exhilarating. And then we opened in August, no, October that year here in Sydney. And then I looked after it for yeah, the next over a decade. Mm. So is there a defining moment early on in your career that really did set you on your path that you can look at? Yeah, I think the moment where things shifted significantly for me was Sweet Charity at the Hayes. Uh, I'd had a lot of success directing. I'd already been nominated for Helpman for the first pro thing I did separate to working with Simon. But it was doing Sweet Charity, which opened the Hayes Theatre as a going concern, that um, I felt I directed the way I direct. I mm. felt like, oh, this, this is, is my how show. I do it. Mm. Um, it 
had no particular expectations coming in except how lovely that Nancy Hayes has got a theatre named after her and a space devoted to musicals. So that was great. There was no no fear. It was like, let's just do this big show in a tiny way that enhances the heart of the show. And I thought it used all the dramaturgical skills I'd built up, all the showbiz skills I'd built up, all the kind of nuancing performer skills. And it just kind of worked on all the levels and it excited people. And so for me, that show was defining in all the work that I got offered or did later on. Mm. Well, I think we need to have some more music now and uh, we have to have a track now from Merrily We Roll Along. Why have we got this particular one? This is Not A Day Goes By, with which is heartbreaking in the show. It's sung twice in the show, actually, which I won't give that away because it's fascinating how it's used twice. But this is the defining version of it in their real world, which is um, Bernadette Peters singing it. And I couldn't ever get this version out of my head after I first heard it. And it's particularly special to me because then it was the song that I sang to audition for Whopper and got in. So it sort of set me on the path to actually being able to even have a career. I keep thinking, when will it end? Where's the day I'll have started forgetting? But I just go on thinking and sweating and cursing and crying and turning and reaching and waking and dying and no not a day goes by not a blessed day but you're still somehow part of my life and you
Bernadette Peters with Not A Day Goes By. From Merrily We Roll Along by Stephen Sondheim. The choice of my guest in conversation today, director Dean Bryant. His production of Merrily We Roll Along was on at the Hayes and it will be again after this lockdown is over. Dean, I'd like to talk about my brilliant career now. Uh, It's a classic Australian story. What was the inspiration that made you want to turn it into a musical? I wanted to turn my brilliant career into a musical because I thought it would be served by becoming a musical, which is kind of hopefully why anyone does. Matthew and I had written four full musicals since Prodigal by this point and then stopped for quite a long time. We'd done um, remounts and workshops and a lot of cabaret work. Uh, We just hadn't written anything from scratch. My directing career and his music directing career, because he also does that, had filled a lot of time. And then we got the opportunity to write something from scratch. We got funding from Gene Pratt to do this incredible thing through Monash University down in Melbourne where they gave you a, a very generous commission to write an entire musical from scratch very quickly. I think we wrote it from first note to end of first draft in three months, which is phenomenal for a musical. Then you would workshop it with pros and then you would fully rehearse it and put it on stage in a fully designed production with a combination of professional actors, a professional creative team and a student ensemble. So we're like, this is it. This is the chance to see within a year what it is that we can come up with. And the actual story I've always felt, I felt quite drawn to Sibylla, who's the main character in my brilliant career, because... She can be charming, but she's also pretty determined to say what she thinks, which is sort of a trait I share with her. (laughs) Also grew up on a farm thinking, oh, what else is there? Is not ashamed to be (laughs) sometimes a snob, but I also felt that her ability to share her soul through writing and especially music in a musical would enable us to get inside Sibylla in a way that we do in a book, but not in a movie. The songs just open up the innermost feelings of a character. I also thought because she's so clearly a woman, not of her time, you know, late 19th century, published 1901, that it would be a fun way to write actual folk pop rock music for her to define her as different than the world she was actually in. And all of that turned out to be true. Mm. So how much is the book and how much is Judy Davis and Sam Neill? (laughs) (laughs) Well, none of it's Judy and Sam, except that In your brain, though, in your head when you're writing it. I took it all from the book. The book is actually a treasure trove. It's so rich. There's so much in it that jumped out. Like, it's so funny. There's like um, Frank, the kind of dweebish uh, jackaroo from England that unsuccessfully woos her early in the piece before she meets, you know, Mr. Hottie from next door. He just has these throwaway comments saying, oh, you're such a brick of a girl. And I'm like, that's a funny idea for a song. So he sings this stupid boy band song that's all about how she's like a brick, you know, and obviously that doesn't successfully woo her. So a lot of it came from the fact that Miles has seeded really fantastic stuff throughout the book that opens to song. And then a lot of it just came from my feelings as an outsider, you know, a young gay man growing up in the country going, oh, I don't think I can stay here and be satisfied so yeah that married really nicely together can i just touch on that if if you don't mind was it tough it wasn't as tough as the cliche sounds because i felt like i grew up in quite a good community i was just different my actual immediate family were great and i've always been great my slightly larger family were very loving but like so weird how you don't play sport and (laughs) you don't wrestle and you don't do any of the things that all the other boys your cousins do and i was aware that I just was different in that way. 
but I just somehow always gravitated to people who would facilitate what I wanted to do. I was very lucky that my parents are very intelligent and recognized my intelligence as a very good thing to promote. So anything I wanted to do, they made possible, basically. Mm. So I felt like I had a very easy run for something that if I looked back later and went, oh God, that could have been like super traumatic. Going back to my brilliant career, you mentioned it was the result of a grant. Mm. Is that, or the lack of that, the thing that's preventing more original Australian musicals? It would help. Um, it's improved so much since I started writing original musicals. Obviously, Maddie and me started when I was about 22, mm. and it was impossible then. There was no support. Even when our show went to New York, the Australia Council wouldn't give us any funding to help us afford ourselves to get over there because they were like, is this a big deal? We're like, it's like one of the first Australian musicals ever to go to New York City. Don't you think that's worth supporting? Yeah. And I actually guilted them into it eventually, so they did pay our rent, oh, which was good. good. You. You, should, you should sell that se- <laughs> as a way for other people. Um, but what I have noticed in the last uh, five years especially is a hunger for developing Australian musicals from a whole diversity of backgrounds. And I think it's improving very quickly. And with companies like The Hayes, the fact that actually all of our main stage companies now do tend to do a musical at least once every two years. It feels like it's being taken as a legitimate art form that we want to develop our own voice in that now. So I actually feel pretty optimistic about the future of Australian musicals. Was there a we can't do this attitude? We can't do this here? No, I think the attitude was we're just not interested in it. Really? Like why would we mm. why would we resource this when overseas people do it well and we I also think we had a um we had the same old, you know, cultural blah stuff that Australia tends to have. Um I also don't think we were doing them that well either. Like mm. we were too stuck in what is it to be an Australian, which means every show sounds like this or it's set in pioneers <laughs> times and I'm like no one wants to see that yeah. whereas nowadays musicals are about the same shows you watch on Netflix. Like it covers the genres that people are actually interested in. Mm. And there's a certain over over the top world within at least a certain part of the musical genre as well that I think we were frightened to to access. I mean, listening to the soundtrack uh, for My Brilliant Career, I did notice that, you know, the songs are sung with an Australian accent, with an Australian voice, but not the kind of accent you just put on then. It, it was the, more like the accent that we're speaking with now rather than, rather than this kind of, where the hell does that come from? I don't know anyone who sounds like that. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so you, you wrote it in three months, developed it in a year. Mm-hmm. You talked about taking Prodigal to New York, they were used to things taking years to Mm. develop. Uh, I'm wondering whether there's something to be said about developing it in three to 12 months rather than this painful process they sometimes go through in uh, Broadway of how long it takes to get something going. Do you think there's something in that? Absolutely, I do think there's something in that. Oh, my God, you can feel the difference in American shows, for example, between the ones that have been driven by writers and creative producers and directors for that matter, from an artistic level, you can feel the cohesion in those pieces and you can feel the committee ones that um, have had way too much producerial uh, involvement or the writers have been given an assignment to hand in. I just think you can feel the inspiration underneath them. Also, I was really excited by the fact that um, On the Town was famously written in, I think, six weeks. And I was like, because we're doing a youth 
driven show. My Brilliant Career is going to be all about Sibylla, basically, and her cohort. Let's see if we can capture that youth energy by writing it really, really quick and not worrying about... I mean, I can be someone who worries about, is this good? Am I doing this well enough? And I think because I didn't have time, the deadlines were so pressing. It was like, it doesn't matter. It just has to exist. Just finish it. And then later on... So it gave it a... um vitality that it, I think might have lacked if it had been too overworked. Mm, sometimes there's nothing like a deadline. Mm-hmm. So pandemics aside, is it is it heading to Broadway or the West End? <laughs> well, um, I would like it to start at least with just heading to a capital city in a fully professional production. And we are talking about that now, which is exciting. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping that in 23, it'll make its proper professional debut. Obviously, we've done the cast album because we just decided, just do it. We know that's how musicals live. Merrily's on now because they did a cast album. So we spent quite a lot of money, got some grants for that as well, um, but also just invested our own money going, what is the best way we can make a cast recording to give it a life now? Hmm. Well, I think we have to hear a bit of that cast recording now, if we may. Dean, what are we going to hear? We're going to hear the love duet uh, from the show, uh, which I I actually don't think I've ever written a love song for a musical before because my plots don't tend to encompass that. But this clearly is a love story between two people that irritate each other insanely. Uh, So it's Sibylla and Hal at the, it's the closes act one. It's when they finally admit that their friendship does have more than friendship in it. And it happens to be sung uh, by Louisa Scrofani as uh, Sibylla. She was a Helpman nominee for In the Heights at the Hayes. And Andrew Caution, who is playing Frank in My Merrily We Roll Along Now. You get me feeling stuck, stuck, stuck in a tree. And you scramble down, down so you can laugh at me. You get me, get me in a state. You reckon, reckon, reckon that makes you a mate. You're a mosquito buzz, buzz, buzzing round my head. But I can't slap, 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 slap you dead. Cause your bite, bite, bite feels so great. I reckon, reckon, reckon that don't make you a mate. But still I stay out in the sun Until we burn and call it fun And see what sort of trouble waits in store For mates, mates and a little bit more Disappointed I found Would you wait a while Combine romance and reason Would a farmer fertilize If it wasn't the season If you pluck the grapes Too early from the vine You'll get vinegar Instead of wine And will you stay out In the sun until
little bit more. A little bit more. A little bit more. A little bit. Mates. 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 And a little bit more. A little bit more. A little bit more. A little bit more. A little bit. Feeling stuck, stuck, stuck in that tree. While you're skit, skit, skidding round, making fun of me. I guess this, guess this is our natural state. You reckon, reckon, reckon you can handle that, mate? I do. And so I'll stay out in the sun until we burn and call it fun and see what sort of trouble waits in store for mates, mates and a little bit a little bit more from My Brilliant Career, co-written by Matthew Frank and my guest in conversation today, the director and writer, clearly, Dean Bryant, the performers there, Andrew Kashan and Louisa Scrafani. Dean, there's a part of your professional life we haven't touched on yet, and that's the world of cabaret, uh, although you did mention it earlier, and I don't necessarily mean the Canyon and Ebb hmm. type. Well, maybe I do, I don't know. But I imagine uh, it gives you something that uh, other live performance work doesn't. I love cabaret. I love writing cabaret. Uh, it's something that I came to out of desperation in that I needed money. And I had just come off Priscilla looking after it for three years in Australia and getting it up in London. And I'd been on consistent money from theatre for, you know, that time. And I'm like, I don't want to go back to call centres, which, you know, nothing wrong with it. But I'd done a lot of that before Priscilla. And I'm like, I just want to see if I can keep earning money somehow connected to theatre. Mm. And so I thought if I wrote a cabaret, you know, I could earn a little bit for doing that. But I was like, what am I passionate about? And I'd come across a performer who's very well known now, um, was not well known at all then, called Christy Whelan Brown. And I'd seen her in a production of Company, as it turned out, um, that Gail Edwards directed. And she'd played the dim-witted stewardess, April. And she was, like, so funny and so talented. And I was like, I've got to create something for her. And at the time, Britney Spears had just released her latest album, which I think that one was called Circus. And so I was just jogging around Star City area listening to that. And I was like, oh, imagine if you did a cabaret of Britney Spears songs just with a piano. So you strip away the pop stuff. And Britney herself is like doing what every girl that just has graduated from drama school does, comes and does a cabaret about, oh, my God, my life, you know. And I thought, but imagine if the girl was Britney using her songs. So that was the inspiration for writing my first cabaret, Britney Spears, the cabaret. And then it just went off. Is it sort of Britney Spears unplugged? It's exactly that. that. That's yeah, exactly the yeah. concept. But it's not just Britney, because looking at the list of shows you've done, I think you're betraying the musical tastes of your youth here, perhaps, <laughs> because there's Kylie, Madonna, Annie Lennox. I mean, it's the it's the pop queens of a of a certain era, if I can say. Absolutely. It's basically everything that I, you know, sat by the, the radio <laughs> trying to tape onto a cassette when I was eight years old, bit by bit, until I could actually, until CDs were invented and I could afford to buy them. 
Wasn't that the best thing though? When you could when you could um, burn something onto a CD. <laughs> oh, it was amazing! What freedom! I mean, the kids these days they don't know how well, lucky they, they, they are. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but what else is going through your brain when you're coming up with these? I mean, how much of these are tribute and how much of them are piss take? Well. None of it ends up being piss take because I love all of the people that they're about so much. You like them too much, basically. Exactly. But, of course, they're funny because they're, you know, they do things. They do crazy things. They're hyper-real people, really. (laughs) They're so, um, they've lived the most volatile lives, usually. But all of these, the women that I've written cabarets about are all writers. Even Britney, the song that we're going to hear in a moment, she wrote the song, or co-wrote it. So it's fascinating to me that they are not just performing artists, but creative artists, writing artists. Mm. And that really speaks to me, that desire for them to have their own voices come forward. But I do admit, I also just like to make jokes. Yeah. But if Brittany or Kylie or Annie Lennox or whoever were in the audience that night, would you be delighted or absolutely horrified? I would be very nervous. (laughs) But I think and have your lawyer feel... on standby. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we'd ever do them again. <laughs> I think they'd be honoured because every single one of them ends up being a summation of what they've given the world. And I mean, as an artist, sometimes just the most gratifying thing is having someone else say, "I've seen what you do, and I think it's incredible." And it's funny with what's going on for Britney. Right now, I mean, she's always in the news, never more so, even the last week. And our piece, even though it was written in 2009, literally covered that experience. What is it to be a young woman who has the agency of her own life taken away from her and still be expected to go out to sold-out arenas and Mm. sell perfumes and all that? What does it actually mean to go through that experience? Mm. Well, we're going to hear a bit of Britney now. Uh, What have we got? This is a song called Every Time, which is one of the few successful ballads she's done. Her audience doesn't really love a ballad, but this one was very successful. Um, It actually ends our show. It's such a beautiful song. It's called Every Time.
Britney Spears. Not a name you'd ordinarily associate with this station, but there you go, with every time a choice of my guest in conversation today, director Dean Bryant. Dean, to finish up, when you've got your headphones in, say walking down the street, getting some exercise today or tomorrow, what's the music that's playing? Oh, that's very interesting. Um, what have I been listening to lately? I... <laughs> Well, I was listening to Ed Sheeran's latest song, which is quite catchy, and he's going into a different genre. Good for him. Um, I listen to musicals a bit, much less than I used to as a teenager, but I, I you know, like to keep track of what the new stuff that's coming out um, is. When I'm rehearsing a musical, I like to listen to all the cast recordings I can get my hands on wow. all the time because that really sends it into my imagination and, and solutions start occurring but I do predominantly listen to pop music when I'm running which is Britney Gaga Beyonce Whitney Madonna exactly stuff that will stop me from stopping and just going oh exercise really does suck (laughs) (laughs) yeah you've mentioned a lot of musicals we've talked about a lot of musicals in this show I mean anything goes with something that uh, we mentioned at the top of the program that you did for Opera Australia do you have a bucket list in terms of shows that you'd like to do I don't think I have a single musical left that I am dying. Actually, there is one. I would really, really love to do Carousel. Oh, um, that's an interesting choice given I know. all the Sondheim. <laughs> I know. Well, Car- Sondheim was that opening night of Carousel. He was aged 14 years old. Well, he was best go. friends um, with Oscar Hammerstein. Oscar Hammerstein was a second father to him. So he was there with um, Dorothy. I believe, was yeah. Oscar's wife. You have to be on my trivia team next time. <laughs> <laughs> and he apparently ruined her fur coat because he sobbed so much in Carousel oh. that it, that his tears were indelibly printed. Uh, I've done Carousel twice as a performer. Um, I played the same role in both, uh, once in amateur theatre and once at Whopper, which was a an urchin, he's called. He just ran around in the Dream Ballet, um, dancing quite poorly in my case, I would say. But the music, the score is like, it's just in my soul. I think it's so beautiful. And I know the story is quite problematic now and I know people struggle with it, um, but I would love to have a go at it and see if the humanity in it could somehow live in what the politics of our world is now. Mm. What are you, your thoughts on that sort of thing? How much do you have to, quote-unquote, fix those issues or, or are adequate warnings ahead of the show enough? I feel like, you know, they put warnings on shows as you walk in now, and I guess that's fine. I don't know why people don't take responsibility themselves for what they're about to see. It seems strange to me. I always know what I'm going to see, um, even if it's just like a few things of what the topic is going to be. But I think as a creator or an interpreter, you have to take full responsibility for the time you are in on that day, one, artistically, because you are only ever creating in the on the day that you've had. And so you have to take in the politics of that day. It's also very, very important to take on board the um, voices that have been historically shunned uh, or not listened to or not deemed as important enough to warrant attention. And unfortunately, in old musicals, what happens is issues that were their attempts at taking it seriously then ended up being the source of the comedy in those musicals. And, of course, we just can't find that stuff funny anymore. It isn't funny. And then you have to find a way to approach it that honours what it was and is but tells your audience 
we get it. We get what's real and what's important now and we can still watch this material on mm. stage and take that on board. There's a line that can be walked, basically. I think so. I mean, there's some stuff that can never be said on a stage, but that stuff's not in the musicals anymore. You just remove that with the permission of the rights holders. Mm. Do you want to do more performing? <laughs> God, no. I'd never even thought about that. Um, how funny. No, I do not want to do more performing. Um, but I do think that I should sing again because I think it would be a good challenge for me to go through what the performers go through that I put them through uh, and just get some bit more compassion again from what I'm asking them. Look, people, if I can do this, so can you. Well, it's that. I do always use that because I trained in performance at music theatre. I'm always like empathetic to actors to a point and then I'm like, you know what? I've done it too. Stop it. But you laughed there. I mean, is that because you, you, you have a sort of a, an inner thing saying, I, I'm, just not, I'm just not good enough or have you just decided that that's actually not for you? No, I know I'm not good enough. Oh. <laughs> not compared to the people I work with. They're yeah. incredible. I mean, I've always been someone who is like, if you can't be exceptional at what you do, you know, there are exceptional people. So I would prefer to direct those exceptional people. But I think for my own pleasure, it would be good for me to maybe do not a cabaret, but even just sing occasionally because yeah. I did used to love it a lot. Yeah, great. Now, before we finish up, we do have uh, another piece of music to take us out of the program. It's a bit of Barbara Streisand. Uh, I know. And it's, a, it's an interesting classical work as well. How, how have we ended up with this one? <laughs> I'm not even sure if people would officially designate it as classical, even though her album is called Classical Barbara, because her singing style is certainly not classical. Um, but I used to listen to this album. Uh, it used to help put me to sleep when I uh, used to have sleeping issues. And it was just so delightful and restful. And this song in particular we're going to hear just always helped me nod off. But I primarily chose it because um, Barbara Streisand was a really pivotal influence at a certain point when I think I needed to just know about an artist who did not let people stop her through what was special about her. She didn't change to to actually um, have a career. She emphatically said, I am better for what is weird about me and I will defy you all. And maybe sometimes I've become a bit too defiant um, because I can sometimes be uh, not intractable, but, uh, you know, challenging. But I, I just thought she was incredible. And she also, her Broadway album is what actually led me to Sondheim properly because she does, does a handful of his work on that album, which was a huge seller and took, you know, musicals to the wider population. And so I think from Barbara, I went to Sondheim and from Sondheim, I went to my entire career. So it's special to me for that. Excellent. Sounds awesome. Well, Dean Bryant, thank you so much for taking the time to be in conversation with me today. Thank you. Director Dean Bryant. He's directing Merrily We Roll Along at the Hayes Theatre. As I record this, performances are, of course, sadly suspended. But keep an eye on hayestheatre.com.au for when the lockdown is lifted. That's all for In Conversation for this week. If you find yourself at a loose end during this lockdown, why not have a listen to some of our older episodes that you might have missed at finemusicsydney.com slash inconversation or on your preferred podcast app. I'm Simon Moore and this is 2MBS Fine Music Sydney.
Thanks for listening to In Conversation. This episode originally aired on Fine Music Sydney, 102.5 FM, streaming and DAB+. It was presented by Simon Moore and produced by Joe Goddard. For more episodes, just head to finemusicsydney.com slash inconversation.